If you have your Bibles with you, uh, please turn in them to Ephesians chapter 1, verses 15 through 23. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 15 through 23. <clears throat> this verse speaks to one of the prayers which Paul uh, prays for the Ephesian church. And in this prayer, Paul speaks to Christ uh, sitting after Christ ascends to heaven. Uh, Paul speaks about how Christ sits at the right hand of our God. And this is the, the doctrine, uh, the topic that we'll be considering from our Heidelberg Catechism. Christ's session, meaning him sitting at the right hand of the Father after he ascends from this earth. So Ephesians chapter 1, verses 15 through 23. Again, please pay careful attention, for this is God's word to us this morning. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him, who fills all in all. Well, thus ends the reading of God's word. May he again write this word upon our hearts this morning. Well, please turn in your order of worship to the uh, confessional reading element of our service. The confessional reading <laughs> element this morning, we are confessing together Heidelberg Catechism, Lord's Day 19, question and answers 50 through 52. Lord's Day 19, question and answers 50 through 52. Again, I will read the question if you'd please respond by reciting the answer. Question 50 asks, why the next words and sits at the right hand of God? Christ ascended to heaven there to show that he is the head of his church the one through whom the Father governs all things. Question 51 asks, how does this glory of Christ our head benefit us? First, through his Holy Spirit, he pours out gifts from heaven upon us, his members. Second, by his power, he defends us and preserves us from all enemies. Question 52 asks, how does Christ's return to judge the living and the dead comfort you? In all distress and persecution, with uplifted head, I confidently await the very judge who has already offered himself to the judgment of God in my place and remove the whole curse from me. 
Christ will cast all his enemies and mine into everlasting condemnation, but will take me and all his chosen ones to himself into the joy and glory of heaven. As you know, our catechism has three main sections. And boys and girls, what are those three main sections? Emilani? Guilt, grace, and gratitude. Guilt, grace, and gratitude. And what section are we currently in? Say it. Can you say that again? Grace. Grace, yes, grace. And within this grace section, we are considering true faith. And so the three elements of true faith are violet. Knowledge, assent, and trust. Very good. Knowledge, assent, and trust. We have to know certain things, assent to them, and personally trust in them. And the content of this faith is contained in what, Marcus? The Apostles' Creed. The Apostles' Creed. So right now we are going article by article through the Apostles' Creed, and now we are considering these words and sits, that is, Christ sits at the right hand of God. Now, of course... Creeds, like the Apostles' Creed, they're summary statements, meaning the framers of this creed had to be selective in what they included in this document. Now, it may strike us a bit odd that of all the things that one could put in a creed, they include this note about Christ sitting at the right hand of God. I think most Christians don't view this as being all that significant, or at least significant to, to, to make it in such a short creed. Like, what's really the significance of Christ sitting at the right hand of God? Well, the framers of this creed, which originated in the very early church and has passed, been passed down from generation to generation, they believe that this, this doctrine... Christ's session was important enough to be included in this short creed, which at least should make us open to the idea that this is a very significant doctrine to the Christian faith and significant doctrine to our own Christian lives. And so this doctrine of Christ sitting at the right hand of God is, in theological terms, referred to as Christ's session. Christ's session, meaning he sits, he ascends to heaven, he sits at the right hand of the Father. And so this, this morning, we're going to consider uh, what we mean when we confess these words. What, 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 what is Christ's session all about? That's what we see in question answer 50. And then we're going to, going to consider how Christ, from this sitting position, benefits us. He gives gifts to us, and he defends us. And, then, and we see that in question answer 51. And then lastly, we will consider briefly that day when Christ will get up and return just as he left. When Christ will return to judge the living and the dead. And we see that in question answer 52. So what do we mean when we confess these words, Christ sits at the right hand of God? Well, in the ancient world, sitting upon a throne was a picture, a symbol of power and authority ancient world, a king would oftentimes sit after he accomplished militaristic victory. This is sort of, uh, refers to divine enthronement. One would sit. And so Christ, when he sits at the right hand of God, 
one of the things that it's teaching us is that he has all power and authority. He has all power and authority. Think, for instance, of a judge. You know, when a judge sits, that judge is a sitting judge, and he is now exercising authority in his domain, the courtroom. Now, you encounter a judge sitting in his courtroom, that's one thing. You encounter a judge in the grocery store off duty, that's another thing. In one instance, he has no authority. In the other instance, he's in his domain, in his office, operating in his given authority. And so, too, when Christ sits, uh, court is in session. Christ has legitimate authority to exercise over this creation. And so that's why in verse 21 of Ephesians, uh, Paul says that Christ was seated far above all rule and authority and power and dominion. Paul here is giving all these synonyms that refer to various authorities. And the effect is to say that Christ has supreme authority over every other authority. That's, that's Paul's point. Christ's courtroom, as it were, is not just the church, but it's every square inch of this universe, as Abraham Kuyper said. Like Christ is king. He's seated over this entire universe, the, the church and the common kingdom, everything. Christ is seated. He's far above every rule, authority, power, and dominion. And Paul continues then in verse 22, and he says, And he put all things under his feet. He put all things under his feet. Now, here Paul is quoting from Psalm chapter 8, verse 6. And Psalm chapter 8 is a psalm that speaks about how God created mankind to exercise rule and dominion over creation. Which is exactly what we read about in Genesis 1 and 2. God created mankind to exercise rule and dominion over the rest of creation. And so the pattern of creation that we encounter not just in Psalm 8, but in Genesis 1 and 2, is God as the supreme ruler and creator, then mankind as his representative here on earth, his vice regent, and then the rest of creation. And so Adam was created with this present creation under his feet. He was called to exercise authority and dominion over the rest of creation. That's why in Genesis 2, we hear of Adam naming the creatures and not the creatures naming Adam. Adam has the authority over the creatures. But as we continue on in the narrative of Genesis, we learn that Adam fails to live as an image bearer of God. He fails to live within the structures of this pattern of creation. And so when Adam and Eve sin, what they do is they are essentially subverting this, this pattern of creation. So when Adam and Eve give in to the temptation of the serpent, what they're doing is they're pledging allegiance to a serpent, a created being, and thus in their hearts putting God at the bottom of the hierarchy. But they're subverting that natural pattern of creation. The natural pattern of creation was God, mankind, the rest of creation. But when Adam and Eve sin, what they're doing is they're putting the serpent on the top of the hierarchy and God is at the bottom. Now, of course, this doesn't accord with reality, but in their hearts, that's what they're doing. And this is what we do every time we sin. Every time we engage in idolatry, we are subverting the very pattern of creation. 
we are putting a created thing or being on top of that hierarchy and pledging our allegiance to it. We are becoming a slave to that thing rather than exercising dominion and authority over that thing. That's idolatry. We first see idolatry taking place when Adam and Eve succumbed to that original temptation. So they failed to keep everything under their feet and exercise that perfect benevolent dominion as God exercises perfect and benevolent dominion. Hence, the reason Christ needed to come as the second Adam. So Christ came as the second Adam to do what the first Adam failed to do. He came to work as God worked. Adam failed to work as God worked. And so Christ was the only being, uh, human being who perfectly exercised dominion, exercised dominion and rule over this present creation. Think of the wilderness temptation. Christ didn't allow that ancient serpent to, uh, to elevate himself above Christ. Christ exercised, exercised dominion over him. He didn't give in to his temptation. He perfectly obeyed. Christ was the only human being who didn't subvert that original pattern of creation. Christ was the only human being who didn't engage in idolatry, who kept that pattern of God, mankind, rest of creation in that order every moment of his life. And so that's why Paul can say that all things have been put under Christ's feet. Not only the things that belong to this present creation, but the things that belong to the new creation. Christ is the only human being who can sit in that new creation, in God's seventh-day Sabbath rest, and say that the new creation is under his feet. He's the rightful inheritor of the age to come. And therefore, in Christ, we also are granted an inheritance to that seventh-day Sabbath rest, which Christ, as the perfect image bearer, as the perfect second Adam, has earned. And so, when we hear about this language of Christ sitting, it denotes for us, yes, that Christ has all power and authority. And again, we shouldn't think that Christ is somehow God's right-hand man, and he's lesser than, than God the Father. That's not what's being implied here. Rather, as the Catechism says, the language of being at the right hand of the Father means that the God the Father is ruling through Christ. Ruling through Christ, and then, by extension, by the operation of the Holy Spirit. It's a triune act. And so Christ, as he's seated, has all power and authority. He's king now. We're not waiting for a future day in which Christ will become king. He's king now. And it uh, instructs us that Christ was the perfect second Adam. He accomplished salvation. He was the one who perfectly kept all things under his feet and was granted the right to the age to come. And in Christ, then, we are granted that right as well. So Christ sits. He sits as the one who accomplishes salvation. He is the one who sits as king of the universe. And before we've, uh, at other, other times we've considered, too, the language that's used in Hebrews about the contrast between the Old Testament priests and Christ. The Old Testament priests are constantly standing because there's more that needs to be done to take away the sins of God's people, but Christ sits, which again is another way to testify to the fact that he has fully accomplished our salvation. Nothing more needs to be added to it. So Christ sits. Now, Christ sits. Now, question answer 51 asks, well, what benefit is this to us? Again, the catechism is, is always applying these doctrines to our life. What benefit is it to us that Christ sits? And 
what are those two benefits? And this is a question you can answer. What are those two benefits in question answer 51? Yeah, gifts. He pours out gifts upon his church, and he defends us and preserves us from all our enemies. Those are the two benefits. So I'd like us to briefly consider that second one first, that he defends and preserves us against all enemies. Now, in verse 21 of Ephesians 1, Paul, again, when he says that Christ has, has been seated far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is, or you could even say could be, named. Now, here, what Paul is doing is he's likely playing on the original context of this church in Ephesus. Now, in the church in Ephesus, we know, was... Uh, very much into magic and occult practices. They're very superstitious. In fact, in Acts chapter 19, when Paul is spending some time in Ephesus, uh, we read this in Acts chapter 19, verses 18 through, through 19. Uh, we read also, Many of those who were now believers came, confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. So what, <clears throat> what, we are, uh, what we see there is that there are many people who are into these magic arts in the church of Ephesus. And there was this common notion in, <clears throat> in Ephesus and in the ancient Greco-Roman world that if you invoke the name of a god or spirit, you were exercising authority over that God or spirit. So if you named the God or spirit, you would be exercising authority over that God or spirit. And so sometimes people wouldn't want to name their God so that the enemy couldn't invoke the name and exercise authority over, over their God. <clears throat> and so when Paul is saying that Christ is seated far above every name that could be named, he's essentially saying, yeah, every name that exists within this spiritual, immaterial world, I have authority over. There's likely many believers in the church in Ephesus that were very fearful of this spiritual, immaterial world. And Paul's assuring them that, yes, Christ is seated above every authority or power, even in the immaterial, spiritual world. And what that tells us today is that, yes, there is a spiritual, immaterial world, not according to... Um, what the pagans in Ephesus believe, but Paul says that there is a spiritual world. There are demons. There is Satan. He exists. But as those who are in Christ, as those who have submitted to King, Christ, uh, King Jesus, who are united to him, we don't need to fear anything in the material world or in the immaterial spiritual world. We're safe. Christ defends and preserves us from all enemies. That's what Paul is trying to uh, get across to this, this church in Ephesus. And Paul continues in verses 22 through 23 and says that Christ has been seated as head, <coughs> excuse me, head over all things uh, to the church. And you could render that as for the sake of the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. What Paul is saying is that, yes, Christ is king over everything, but he rules everything with a special eye towards the church a special eye to preserving his people. And that's why we have all those precious promises that not a hair can fall from our head, right? Those who are members of his church. That's why Jesus says, as we consider in that declaration of pardon, that no one can snatch them, the Father's people, out of my hand. 
and no one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. Right? We're secure because King Jesus defends and preserves us from all enemies. He rules for the sake of the church with a special eye towards the preservation of his people. So Christ defends and preserves his people. But then we also learn uh, another benefit we receive is that Christ ascends to heaven and he pours out gifts upon his people. It's sort of like that, that breaking of the pinata. All of these gifts come falling down to this earth. Christ ascends and gifts come down. And one of the, the chief of these gifts is the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit. Paul here, many of your translations probably capitalize the spirit of wisdom and revelation that Paul is praying for to this church in Ephesus. He's praying that this church would, would, would experience a greater manifestation, that spirit of wisdom and revelation, that spirit who raised Christ from the dead. And we do learn in the book of Acts that Christ goes up in Acts chapter 1, and then the, and then the spirit comes down. Right? Christ goes up, the spirit comes down upon his church. And this is the chief gift that he gives his people. But then if you, if you turn over in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4, verses 8 through 11, Paul here in Ephesians chapter 4 speaks about some other gifts that our ascended Savior gives to his church beyond that of the Spirit. So Ephesians chapter 4, verses 8 through 11. And here Paul is quoting from Psalm 68. Psalm 68, and beginning in verse 8, Paul says, Therefore it says, When he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower regions, the earth? And he who uh, descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles and the prophets and the evangelists and the shepherds and the teachers. We'll stop there. But here, notice, notice what Paul's saying. He's saying Christ ascended, he left this earth, and he gave gifts to the church. And he gave, and these gifts come in the form of apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers. Yes, the chief gift that Christ, the ascended Savior, gives his church is a spirit. But beyond that, his gifts include the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers. Now, the apostles and prophets are part of Christ's gift to the church. You might think, well, okay, that benefits the first century church, but how does that benefit us today? We're not under the ministry of, of the apostles. They've long passed away. So who wrote our New Testament? The apostles and the prophets. And therefore, these apostles and prophets benefit us as we have they're inspired letters and works that we draw nourishment from, spiritually speaking. And so the scriptures are, in one sense, a gift to us from our ascended Savior. So boys and girls, having a Bible is a gift from Christ himself. And the fact that you can have a personal copy of your Bible in our day and age is a wonderful gift. That you can read it. You have the privilege of being able to go to school and learn language. This Bible is translated in a language that you can understand. This is a great gift from our ascended Savior. But Paul continues and he says that Christ's gifts also include the evangelists, the shepherds and the, the teachers. Paul here is referring to the ordinary ministry of the church, 
ordinary elders, or ordinary pastors. They're gifts from our ascended Savior. Another way to put it, the local church is a gift from our ascended Savior. And so for those who um, depart from the church or separate themselves from the church, they're separating themselves from one of the key gifts that Christ has given us in this age. So the local church, the preaching, the teaching that, uh, that is administered in, in this church, this is, these are gifts from our ascended Savior. But if you go down to verses 15 through 16, Paul says, Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Now, yes, Paul, um, Christ, has, uh, Christ has given his church these, these offices, apostles, elders, pastors, for the building up of the body to do the work of the ministry to ensure that we are presented mature in Christ. However, here Paul also is saying that each member of the body of Christ has a role to play. Paul says that when each part is working properly, functioning in their God-given role, that's why this, this, this imagery of a body is so helpful, because when you think about your own body, your finger, your toes, your, your knees, forearm, they all have separate functions to play so that your whole body can, can function properly. Well, Paul is saying so too in the church. Every member of Christ's church is needed as a part to play so that the whole body can work properly and grow up into Christ who is the head. And so we all have been given ordinary gifts. Uh, these gifts don't necessarily... I'll come with an office or a title. But these are indispensable gifts to the body of Christ. And these things can be as simple as praying for the church. Praying for the church. Praying for brothers and sisters within the church. It can be as simple as, as being intentional, <coughs> excuse me, intentional in conversation with one another within the church. Again, these can be very ordinary gifts, ordinary tasks, but they are indispensable for the building up of the body of Christ. And so we all have a part to play. If you're a member of Christ Church, you have an indispensable part to play in the body functioning properly. <clears throat> so Christ sits and he dispenses gifts and, and protection as he sits. And briefly, I want us to, to look at question answer 52 because we also learn in Scripture that there's a day coming when he's going to get up from this throne and, and return, return as he came. He's going to return as he came. And we confess this in the Apostles' Creed when we say that Christ will come again to judge the living and the dead. Listen to what Hebrews chapter 9, verses 27 through 28 say. But as it is, he, that is Christ, has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. The author of the Hebrews tells us here that Christ died 
at the end of the ages. Part of what we learn here is that Christ's death triggered the end of the ages. We live in the last days. We considered this uh, last week. Christ's death and resurrection triggered the last days, the end of the ages. This also teaches us that Christ's death and resurrection, the age to come is broken in into the, in this present evil age. And so we have a foot in two ages. We belong to this present world, yes, but we also have a foot, a taste of that age to come. And we get a foretaste of that, especially when we gather together on Sundays, when we partake of the Lord's Supper. But this is also telling us that Christ endured final judgment for all those who trust in him. Christ endured on the cross final judgment for all those who trust in him. That's the good news of the gospel. That is the reason why Christ's return is a comfort and not a terror to us. Because Christ has already taken final judgment for us on the cross. Christ would, uh, God would no, longer be uh, would, be, would no longer be just if he dispensed his wrath twice on the same sin. So if you're trusting in Christ, then your sins have already been paid for, and therefore, due to God's justice, they cannot be judged again on the last day. That's why our catechism says that in all of our sorrows and persecutions, we can look with uplifted head to the very one, that is to say, the judge who has already offered himself uh, to the judgment seat of God on our behalf. When did that happen? On the cross. Christ has offered himself up to the judge of all the earth, God the Father, and took the penalty of our sins. So recall uh, a few weeks back when we think, uh, thought about the triumphal entry, when Jesus rides into Jerusalem on a donkey. And I briefly noted this contrast that we have in Scripture of Christ on a donkey and Christ on a war horse. So we are told in Revelation that when Christ returns as judge, he's coming on a war horse. He's not coming on a donkey. But he's coming on a war horse for all of those who have rejected his terms of peace that he brought when he came riding on a donkey. Again, donkey symbolizes peace. And so Christ is coming on a war horse, but he's coming on a war horse for all those who have rejected his terms of peace that he brought in his first coming when he came on a donkey. So for those of us who are in Christ, we can look with uplifted head. And that language comes from Luke chapter 21. Look with uplifted head and await our redemption. Christ is coming again, not to judge our sins, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for us. So that's the good news of the gospel and, and should transform how we view Christ's return. It's a comfort to us. This is one of the, the key points at the Reformation uncovered because the Middle Ages, people were terrified of the second coming. The Reformation taught, based on what Scripture says, that no, for those of you who are in Christ, if you've been justified in this life, your eternal destiny has been already determined based on what Christ has done for you on that cross. So Christ returned to judge the living and the dead, but those of us who are in Christ is a comfort, a comfort to us. Well, again, I want to remind you the, the context in which we are in in this catechism. This is the context of true faith. So these are the things, congregation of Christ, that we are called to embrace. These are the things that we are called to know and continue to press into in terms of knowledge, 
these are the things that we're called to ascend to. We have to believe that Christ in his human nature ascended and is at the right hand of God. We have to uh, believe, uh, uh, know and assent to the fact that Christ will return just as he came. But most importantly, we have to trust, personally trust that not only to others, but to me personally, Christ sits at the right hand of God. Trust that to, for me personally, Christ will return as my savior, my advocate, our husband, as we will be seated at the marriage supper of the Lamb.